Hello, it's Denise from Women Beyond a Certain Age. I'm always excited. So people, <laughs> I can't think of another opening line. That's all I can say. I'm always excited. Our guest today is Liz Williams. Welcome, Liz. Well, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I, Liz, I can't believe it. For we both, I, I was in food for 40 years and we don't know each other. I don't know why that is, but I feel like I know you because uh, I'm on your mailing list. Liz has a wonderful newsletter, you guys, called Tip of the Tongue that tells you everything about Liz, really, and tells you how to reach her. So it's pretty fascinating. But the reason I wanted Liz, Liz on today is because of her beautiful book called Nana's Creole Italian Table. And the subtitle is Recipes and Stories from Sicilian New Orleans. Now, Liz, when did this come out? So it came out in um, 2022. Okay. So it's, it's new. Yeah, it's wonderful. And just so people know, I, I know you can order at different places and Liz will tell you that. And we always put Liz all the show notes, Cindy gathers up show notes so people know how to find you and where, you know, and stuff like that when we broadcast the um, podcast. But I have to tell you, I bought it off Amazon and it came within a 24 hour period. And I was thrilled. I love to go to independent bookstores, but when all of a sudden we confirm this, I just wanted to have the book in my hot little hands before I um, spoke to you. So you, but we have to tell people one thing about you, you tell us whatever you like, but to get it started is you were originally an attorney before yes. you became a cookbook author. And yes. Tell us a little bit about your journey, because that's what makes you a woman beyond a certain age. <laughs> <laughs> so I I was one of those people who was always interested in food, not cooking it necessarily, but just the way food and culture collide and um, how people change because of their geography and just all the issues about food that there are. But when I was in school, it really wasn't possible to study that. No. Um, you could only maybe get a degree in um, in something like home economics or something, but that was it. And so that's not what I wanted. So I um, got a degree in English and then still not knowing what I wanted to do. I went <laughs> to law school, but that's what everybody does. You know, it's like, I don't know what to do. I guess I'll go to law school. <laughs> and so that's what I did. And um, I used being in the a lawyer to uh, go live in Europe for three years. I joined the army and was a JAG officer and um, went back, uh, came back to the U.S. and worked at the Pentagon as a civilian for a while, moved back to New Orleans. Um, and one of the things that happened and these, you know, how things kind of fall into place while I was in Germany, there was a, um, a, a, a like an, a satellite university of University of Maryland. And it allowed all these people in the service to go to college while they were in Europe. And so they were looking for somebody to teach business law. And I said, oh, well, I'll do that. I, I, that might be fun to do. So I, I taught business law for the three years that I was there in at college level. And um, 
so then when I returned to New Orleans, oh, and while I was in, New, in, in Washington, D.C. at the Pentagon, I did a lot of pro bono work with nonprofit organizations and arts organizations. So then, you know, when you're doing your pro bono work, you want to pick something that's interesting. So I didn't want to do divorces and <laughs> things like that, you know, as pro bono stuff. So um, I I did more fun things like art museums and whatever. And so um, then I moved to New Orleans because that's where I'm from. And I so I was going home and I saw an ad in the newspaper when that was still the way you looked at things. <laughs> when and, there were still newspapers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> And there was an ad in the newspaper for somebody who had a lot of experience working with nonprofits and was a lawyer who had also taught at the college level. And I said, oh, that sounds like me. So um, it was the University of New Orleans and they had an arts administration program. So I started to teach arts administration law. And then from there, I took over the program. And then from there, I, I took over the uh, University of New Orleans Foundation, and they opened two museums. One was um, the what is now the World War II Museum, and one was the Ogden Museum of Southern Art. And I was the president and CEO, so I was the person who was doing this opening. Yeah. And I said, you know, I was still always interested in food, and I went to the chancellor and I said, oh, let's open a food museum. But he wasn't, you know, was there was not really an interest there. And so um, I, I left the University of New Orleans Foundation with this idea that I'm going to open a food museum. And that's how I got into food. I also um, taught a restaurant course, a, a restaurant law course at the university for a semester too. Um, and so... I kind of started this transition to law, I mean, from law into food. And because I didn't want to like totally 100% start over, um, <laughs> I, you know, because- Because it, you're smart. <laughs> I, and it's uh, nice to pay the rent. And exactly, nice exactly, exactly. I, uh, I decided that I would um, start by doing law and food policy articles. And because that was something where there's really, a, there's not a lot of competition there. I mean, it's not as full as like writing recipes and things in terms of the number of people who are doing it. So I, I cold called um, um, Gastronomica magazine. Oh, and, sure. And I said, you know, there's a Supreme Court case that's coming out and it has a lot of implications uh, for restaurants and such. And um, I'd like to write an article about it. And they said, the only thing we ask is that you write something with a point of view and not this very dry legal thing. And I said, oh, don't worry about that. I can do that. And so yeah. that's how I got started. And um, then I wrote another book that was called The A to Z Encyclopedia of Food Controversies and the Law. And I, I co-wrote that with another person. It was a two-volume thing put together like encyclopedia style with yeah. all the issues that are involved with food. So this was allowing me to get a reputation and be known, but in a field where I was just kind of doing a, a lateral instead of starting over. Sounds brilliant. And it is amazing how 
I think that's the fun part as we get older is that it's kind of like you make plans, but also there's a certain amount of the universe putting you in the right, to me, in the right place at the right time. Or when you're bold enough or brave enough or smart enough to just think, oh, I could do that. And you, people used to always say to me, how did you get the that client when Cindy and I worked together for 20 years? And our, uh, after 2008, I really went after big, fat corporate clients because they're the only people that had any money left after right. the crash. And when people would say to me, younger stylists or younger consultants, how would you get that job? I said, I called them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I called them and then I called them again and then I sent them information. And I literally once, this was from many years ago, but for my very first book, Liz, that I wrote in 1993, there used to be a thing like newspapers called the Book of the Month Club. If you remember, oh, yes. and there was a wonderful woman in charge of it. And she would, you know, they picked a book of the month and you got the catalog and, you know, you made, you made some sales when you were in her catalog. Sure. I called and faxed. That's how we got in touch with people so many times that eventually her assistant said, just a minute, Pat wants to talk to you. <laughs> and Pat came to the phone and said, if I put you in, in this month, Will you stop calling me? <laughs> now, she didn't exactly sound angry, but she didn't sound amused either. And I said, I would be more, I'd be so grateful. I can't tell you. And the next month I got that piece that you tore off her order form. That was the like, oh, and I sold like 10,000 books that month. Do you know what I mean? Oh, so yeah. the power of it. But you know what? Years later, <laughs> this is no exaggeration. I found, I saw her at IACP, Book of the Month Club was still in business. And mm -hmm. I walked up to thank her. And I said, Miss Adrian, I don't know if you remember. She said, you're Denise Bobaldo. <laughs> <laughs> Again, not saying, she didn't say it meanly. She didn't say it lovingly. But, <laughs> you know, I called her. So to me, when I hear your, I mean, I, I use the word that it was like, calculated smart do you know what I mean and I mean calculating and being smart you look for opportunities that would interest you and you found them and then created them is that well, right yeah, yeah that's basically what I did but it was more because this is like I don't want to start over you know I, I really want to sort of slide over yeah I say this to people all the time Liz when I would still teach catering classes, people came, they were 45 or 50. Now these are women that love to cook. I'd say to them, have you done any catering yet? And they'd say, no, I'd say, do you know how hard, the reason you should do catering when you're 25 is because of your legs and your yeah. feet. Okay? <laughs> it has nothing to do with intelligence or nothing to do with cooking skills. It has to do with standing in locations for 24 hours. And you've had eight hours the day before of prep. So, you know, it, I understand not wanting to start over because I wasn't as smart as you and I did start over and it took me like 10 years to get close to the income that I'd left. Do you uh -huh. know what I mean? Uh -huh. Which wasn't easy, but okay, life goes on. Now, my husband went to law school. He's also an attorney. He went to law school at Tulane. Oh, wow. Yes. So when I told him about you this morning, because his, of course, memories of, I mean, he loves, still loves New Orleans, but his memories of living in New Orleans and going to school there and 
are phenomenal. I've been there many times. I have not lived there. Well, now, this is what I want to get to for a few minutes, and we can come back and then talk about your museum and the other things you do. I did live, I shouldn't have said that. I lived in New Orleans, but only for about, actually, I was living in Kilm, Mississippi, if you know where that is. Oh, yes, I, I do. <laughs> okay. And you would take the bus into New Orleans. And I got a job after I'd been an intern, one of my first jobs out of school, I got a job on one of the river boats that went up as oh. a prep cook. Yes. Uh -huh. Because my roommate on the cruise ship that I'd internship with lived in, lived there and got me the job. Okay. The humidity was killer to me, absolutely killer. And yeah. I, I'm not sure I ever adapted, but I certainly, what I didn't know, I knew the diversity in um, New Orleans. I didn't know about the Sicilian community that was so great. I knew some Italians had been there. I didn't know how, what a big migration of Sicilians went to New Orleans. So talk about that. Well, it started with the, the aftermath of the Civil War. So when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, it allowed people, I mean, not the next day, but let's yeah. just, uh, it allowed people to leave, um, leave the plantations. And so in Louisiana, we had mostly sugar cane fields. So they were sugar plantations. And in Sicily, they were they were also growing sugarcane. Oh. So, so the Department of Labor in Louisiana knew that you needed to have specialized labor to do this. It wasn't casual labor like anybody can do this. You had to know you what you experienced. You needed experience. Right. When you cut the cane, if you let it ferment overnight, you can't make sugar out of it. So you have to like cut the cane, press it, and then start the sugar making process in less than 24 hours. So you have to know what you're doing. Wow. So they, they recruited people who became essentially um, indentured servants. Um, and they came over and they lived on the plantations and it was a small group, but they came and they worked. And then some of them stayed and some of them went back. But what it meant was that in Sicily, Everybody knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who lived in the New Orleans area. Yes. And so later, toward the end of the 20th, the 19th century, um, when Garibaldi had taken over to unify Italy, and in the northern part of Italy, there was a lot of factories that came as a part of the Industrial Revolution, and the breadbasket was Sicily. And so the food was being taken from Sicily and sent up to the north. And then the people in Sicily were starving. Uh. And so they said, where do we go? What are we going to do? And everyone said, aha, I know somebody who lives in the Louisiana area. And so people started coming around. Uh, this is a rough number. Yes. Five yes. or so. And they started coming and they started coming. And then it kind of started, it tapered off by about 1915. So that 30 year period between 1885 and 1915, by some counts, you know, it's hard to put an exact number on this, but by some counts, 100,000 Sicilians came to live in New Orleans. They came directly to New Orleans. It was not 
by through Ellis Island or anything like that. They came directly here. They lived in the French Quarter. The French Quarter became known as Little Palermo. The, wow. The Sicilian dialect was so widely spoken that New Orleans was listed as the second largest city where um, Sicilian was spoken only after Palermo. And with, you know, a, a population of like 300,000, maybe between 300 and 400,000, having 100,000 people come is a huge, huge number of people who come. And so the, the Sicilians, then they took over the French Quarter, and then some of them spilled over into Treme, which is right next to the French Quarter. Some of them spilled over into Marigny, which is on the other side of the French Quarter. And so there was a little bit of that. And so my grandparents and my mother, they, they grew up, my, my grandmother was already an adult and she got married within a year of coming here to Louisiana. But my grand, my, they lived in Treme. And um, so they grew up in what was an African-American neighborhood. Got it. Got and it. Then I went to school there in, in Treme for, for kindergarten, which we called primer, and first grade. So I was very familiar with the neighborhood. I would run to my great-grandmother's house after school to, you know, to be somewhere until my parents picked me up. It sounds fabulous because I I was I grew up in um, Marin County, but my we'd originally been in San Francisco. And a similar story just this is my grandfather came right at about 1890 from uh, the Piedmont region, a little tiny town, um, went through uh, La Havre in France, where most where a lot of immigrants went through. And then he arrived in San Francisco and, you know, and he was also, which when I loved reading your book, he was a butcher because I know you have oh. a <laughs> And I thought a lot of Italian butchers, but you know, that makes sense. Of course it was a trade that they knew because they went hunting or they, they were poor. You know what I mean? They didn't have a lot of money. So you learned to break down the deer or the beef or whatever you had or the sheep. Right. Yeah. So, and now, but was it your grandmother did not marry another Sicilian? Did your grandmother marry a local boy? No, no. My grandmother married a Sicilian. Okay. It was my mother who, who, oh, married, who married the American. Yes. <laughs> the American who was Creole. I mean, the new Creole. No, my, so my um my my father actually uh was from North Louisiana and wow. uh, his mother was a Deluche. and so the Deluches came from one of the soldiers who in the late 17th century was left in Louisiana to like build a fort so it was this long line of Deluches and, you know, they didn't come from aristocracy or whatever. He was just a plain old soldier, but early, early settler, a French settler in uh, Louisiana. That, see, that is fascinating to me. I mean, what a fabulous story. I yeah. mean, that's history. Yeah. I think that's just my sister has been doing 23 and me or the ancestral a lot of more and we've learned a whole lot of things we love because 
we have. But once in a while, she gets a leaf or says to me, oh, we were related to these Hungarian prince and princess. I said, no, we aren't. They have their own family. <laughs> and then she goes back. I said, honey, there was no aristocracy people in our family. I, right. They were peasants. They were peasants in Italy. And then they came here and they had the American dream. But there is no royalty in our background. Right, right. <laughs> But you're, uh, how, that's fantastic. So now when your ma mother married your father, was that a problem that he wasn't Sicilian? No, I don't think so. I think they all liked him, but um, it was, what it did was it gave me a way to have a foot, not only in that community, because yes. my parents spoke English to each other because my my father didn't speak Sicilian. So I only heard Sicilian when my mother and my grandparents would speak or when I was at a party where, you know, the whole community was together or whatever. So I never really learned it. And uh, then once my grandparents died, then I wasn't hearing it. And so, you know, it just, uh, it's not, it's the simplest things are still there, but, you know, I can count to 10, but, yeah. um, I, I really don't speak it, but the I remember actively being able to understand what I was being told when I was a child, child, like four or five. Yeah. And then, you know, it began, everybody started to die off and then you just, you know, you don't keep it up. And so it's gone. My sisters and I did not learn to speak Italian because in our family, now my father, of course, spoke Italian, his father and my grandmother but it was the 50s and it was the beginning of the 60s. And I remember my father saying, dad, speak English, dad, speak English. And that's and I, to my great regret. And now I have tried to take one or two Italian quick learning lessons. And, you know, Liz, I don't have enough RAM left in my computer. <laughs> Right. I mean, we all people say, "Oh, don't worry about it." As you age, you can still do things. Well, there's some things you can't, and and I I don't think I can learn a second language. But I certainly, uh, you know, it's interesting. And then of course, people do change. That's, you know, people change and they die off, and right. you know that's what it is. In your book, one of the first things I love is the first. I love. I'm reading it, still reading it. I didn't get all the way through it because I just got it last night. Your first recipes that you put in there, you put your version, your mother's version, and your grandmother's version. And I thought to my, because I've talked to, we, we've had this, we've had similar conversations, but never with a Sicilian ancestry. Grace Young, and I always talk about the immigration of the Chinese, mm -hmm. And her, she said the same thing, because when I grew up in San Francisco, Liz, all there was was one block was Italian, one block was Chinese. I mean, there was Chinatown, but it was really we it was just blocks. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Italians yeah. and Chinese and Italians and Chinese. So I learned early about dumplings and stuff like that because uh -huh. we just we thought they were Chinese raviolis. Yeah. <laughs> But I loved your comparison of the three recipes, which I think is really timely and, and, but also because people, because we adapt, because recipes change because of ingredients and where we live. That's right. Yes. Yes. And that's why I did it because it was like, you can't just talk about it. If you no. actually show the recipes, then people can get it. Yes. 
I think it's phenomenal. I have been to Sicily. I've been to Palermo twice, but last year I was in Sicily for a week. We were at a villa and, uh, and a Sicilian chef was there. And so I didn't get near enough information, but I certainly enjoyed it. And of course there was lots of fish. Mm -hmm. Well, if you grow up on an island, you eat fish. You're going to eat fish. Yeah. <laughs> but there were some, certainly some similarities. Do you know what I mean? To just the Italian food that I know. But mine is Northern. Ours was Northern Italy. So we didn't even, my grandmother, we didn't use that many tomatoes. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, we used, she used butter and cream and herbs. And it was sometimes when I look back and I learned more, that my grandfather was so close to the Swiss border do you know what I mean? That mm -hmm. I, I see where I understand where he, why he was like he was. It's a very yeah. interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah. So did he speak German too? Uh, he may, Louis may have spoke a little German. He, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'll have to ask my aunt. I have one aunt left that, you know, um, but Louis was so, he came here and he did so incredibly well because he looked for opportunities. I can imagine him knowing other languages. I don't know that for a fact. I'll have to ask that. That's a great question, Liz. I'll ask my aunt. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was it was a very interesting time. So how did your book come about? Did well, you go to your publisher? Did they come to you? How did you think this? How did you decide to write this book? So I decided to write the book because I have seen my children feel less connected to their, their Sicilian heritage than I felt. You know, I had the benefit of knowing my grandparents and saw the Sicilian um, community around them. And um, so I, to me, it was just natural well, they know their grandmother was my mother. And by the time they knew her, she's not speaking in Sicilian to anybody. No. And so they didn't have the same kind of connection. And so then I have my own grandchildren and they don't have any connection. Yeah. And so I thought, oh my goodness, somebody has to find the first person account of this. And even though I could find a lot written about the Sicilian immigration, it was by sociologists, anthropologists, yeah. and people like that, I could not find a real first-person account. And I said, I'm going to have to write it because somebody's got to leave their own, you know, the, the, the story of what it felt like, not just who it was, how many people, what their median income is, you know, all the demographics and whatever. That's different from a person's actual experience. So I decided that if nobody else, I, and I'm not getting any younger, so I'm going <laughs> to do it now, you know? <laughs> and so I went to the publisher with the concept and they were they were happy. And then as, as I was turning it in, they kept saying, oh, can you write some recipes that can illustrate this? And so it wound up being the kind of hybrid book it is, which is lots of recipes and a lot of history and memoir. I love the combination. I think it's fabulous. And you write that in your acknowledgement. And I, again, um, 
I think it's timely and beautiful. And also when I say timely, but also evergreen. Do you know what I mean? I mean, this is very evergreen. People can pick this book up in 10 years and still enjoy the recipes and the stories. So that's really important to me. Do you know what I mean? That you enjoy yeah. right. that, it, that it lasts a while. I think that's phenomenal. What did your children say when you finished, when they saw it? They were excited. They were excited. And of course they flipped through and said, yes, I'm glad you included this. And yes, I'm glad oh. you included that. And in their minds, it was just food. You know, it wasn't like- yes. They didn't yeah. see the the heritage issues, but I think this helped them be able to see that. I think that's incredible. I think that's really incredible. If you, when you cook for the holidays, Liz, or when you're cooking for your family, do you cook some of these recipes still? Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, I would say at least a third of my cooking still has all these roots, you know, and um uh, then I have about a third of what I would call New Orleans food, you know, red beans and rice, jambalaya, gumbo, those kinds of things, uh, shrimp, creole stuff. And then the other third is like more experimental. Let's try this. I haven't, I yes. haven't, I haven't cooked with this spice before. Let's see what we can do with it. You know, that kind of thing. So. Growing up, my grandfather, the apartment house that my grandfather owned was not far from Fisherman's Wharf. So we would walk to the wharf when the crabs came in. Okay. When there was, and these were actually crabs from San Francisco Bay, Dungeness crab, and we would buy them and they still have them. Um, it's all for effect, I think. All for, but you know, big cauldrons of uh -huh. steaming these beautiful crabs. And, um, then Chapino sprung up. That's what all of a sudden the Fishman's Wharf called it Chapino. And we would get home and my grandmother would make, you know, um, crab, crabs and tomatoes and different things. And as children, we'd all say, it's Chapino. And my grandfather would say, no, it's not. You know <laughs> but it's not Chapino. They just made that up. And we didn't understand that concept. I remember sometimes we'd say, we want this. And he'd say, that's not really Italian, but we had seen it on TV or somebody else had said that. Do you know what I mean? And, but we did know that Chef Boyardee food in a can was not Italian food. Right. <laughs> I went to a friend's and we were about nine or 10 and her grandmother lived alone. They were not Italian and her grandmother knew I was coming. So they opened some Chef Boyardee raviolis out of the can and she was trying to be nice. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And when it came to my, on my little plate of the that mush out of the can, I remember thinking, these are raviolis. Right, <laughs> right. And I went home and told my mother and my mother said, did you eat it? I said, I pushed it around on the plate a lot. Do you know what I mean? Because they tasted horrible. Of course they yes, tasted horrible. And they were mushy and horrible. Yeah. But they weren't anything to do with beautiful handmade raviolis. Right. Well, now Liz, so tell me about the museum or slash the foundation. I'm confused sometimes when I got emails from Liz because she's so busy. I don't, I, I'm not sure I can explain it correctly tell me about the museum because you're there right now because when we there you are tell us about the museum well you know the 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 name of the the nonprofit is the national food and beverage foundation okay and one of the pillars is the southern food and beverage museum 
And so that's existed since the beginning. Like we really started around 2004. And um, so um, we got some setbacks because of Hurricane Katrina, which was mm-hmm. in 2005 and stuff. Yeah. But we finally opened officially in 2008. And we've been open ever since. And it's all about the food of the South. And um, then we also have opened a research center in partnership with Nunez Community College. We have over 40,000 volumes. We have archives, thousands of menus. um, And a, a lot of our artifacts are at Nunez Community College in storage so that a researcher scholar, journalist, whoever, can read about things, see what we have in the archive, and also touch the artifacts that support whatever they're researching. And so those are our biggest projects. And then we have some other things that are just starting. Um, One is called the National Culinary Heritage Register. And we are trying to record everything that's 50 years old or older that is food related. So it could be a restaurant, it could be a distillery, it can be a farm, it can be a fishing vessel, it can be just about anything that has to do with with food, but it needs to be 50 years old or older. And that gives us a way to recognize places that maybe only locals know about because it's... um, it's not something that has national impact or at least not, not national notoriety. And so we have that. And so we just do all kinds of things. Yeah. It's fantastic. Now, I don't know that I've been to it. I've been in New Orleans twice since Katrina, but maybe I was busy or I was. Where do people, can people come there? Can people come yes. to your museum? Is there and there's an entrance fee? Do they need an invitation? They do not need an invitation. We're open Thursday through Monday. So Tuesday and Wednesday, we're closed. Perfect. And, um, and then you just pay the entrance fee. It sounds fantastic. I have to put it on my list to be there next time. I would absolutely love that. Um, and just to, and also is, don't you have a podcast? I do. I have a podcast also called Tip of the Tongue and the podcast um, comes out and it's on our our podcast network, which is called the Nitty Grits Network. And um, so you can listen to it there or anywhere that you listen to podcasts, you know. Gotcha. And what else is on the Nitty Grits? So Poppy Tooker's Louisiana Eats is on the network. We have um, um, Enola Drinks. podcast the um um there's a wine podcast there's one about wine versus beer i mean there's just lots of podcasts we even have we have even a person in kenya who does an english language podcast about food in in africa and uh that's fabulous well that sounds wonderful and i'm glad you said that i know poppy Poppy, of course, from IACP, from being an IACP member for 25 years. So that's, it sounds like a wonderful place to go and get all sorts of information and interesting people to listen to. Well, Liz, is there anything, what would you, long-term, I mean, it is long-term, I always say when people say that to me, I go, long-term, I'm at the end of the runway. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? (laughs) But 
what would you what's next what would be something i mean it sounds like you're doing it with you're doing it all but is there something else you'd like to accomplish that you haven't well you know i have this idea and this is actually the first time i've talked about it publicly okay um i have this idea of of writing a book that is that is is popular but nevertheless substantive that really explains to everyone why it is so important to study food how the food is at the heart of everything whether it's economics or politics or taste or art or anything that food is at the center and if we would look at food almost as a harbinger okay food is this is happening to food and that's happening yeah. to food it will tell us a lot about our society whether we're connected whether we're disconnected all of those things and i want to write that book like i see that as like a legacy book that somebody needs to write and that would be the book maybe that all food studies students had to read or something like that, you know. That sounds fun. When you're describing it, I'm thinking that it's the nucleus of a molecule. Yes. That, yes. that sounds fantastic, Liz. Well, in your free time, you have to start working on that. That's all I can say. <laughs> I want to thank you. I need people to know. Liz was so, I sent Liz 24 emails and she wrote back and said, okay, Wednesday at 11. Like I thought, I almost said to you, I am not stalking you, but I am kind of stalking you <laughs> because I was just thrilled to read about your book. And I'm so glad we got to connect today. As always, if people have questions, show notes go up on our website. But you know what works the fastest? Everyone goes to the Facebook page. Isn't that the story of life? Yeah. Um, so Cindy puts your broadcast up on the Facebook page. There's usually new broadcasts if people are new to the podcast every Sunday. Um, I think we've done almost 200 now. I think we've done almost 200 podcasts. Yes. <laughs> and... Um, we really try to focus on women of a certain age because I think all of us have fascinating stories and how any of us have gotten as much done as we have <laughs> and raised children and been married and done everything and fought the movement for Christ's sakes. I think that's it's right. That's I right. heard crying out loud. I meet young women. And when they're saying, oh, I'm this, this I said, honey, I burned my bra for you. You don't, need to, right. you don't need to tell me how busy you are. I was out there. So anyway, Liz, thank you again. I thank Miss Cindy, of course, who keeps the, tra the train on the track. And if you have anything you want to say or you want to message us, it's womanbeyond at iCloud.com. And also, sometimes people want to ask private questions and you can just private message me. I'm happy to respond. So, Liz, I hope you will come back and we will talk more about food and more about the book you're going to write because I agree with you. See, in my life, food has been everything. That's, I mean, and then it became my career, but actually, you know, and I always say I caught two husbands because I could cook. <laughs> I caught two good husbands because I could cook. Young women say to me, oh, my boyfriend won't ask me to marry me. I, and I mean, young women, I go, do you cook dinner? Well, no, we're really busy. I said, honey, that's never going to work. Right, <laughs> right, right. I don't care if you go and buy some food, put it on a nice looking plate and trust me. 
Right. <laughs> Men are pretty simple. They want, and you know, I, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure that's totally inappropriate, but I don't care. It's my podcast. So anyway, thank you again so much. And I thank you to everyone that listens and the people that do write us messages to say how much they enjoy it. I thank you. Okay. Thanks so much, Liz. Thank you very much. This has been thank great you. fun. Bye. Bye. Wasn't it? This was